Right. Good morning, everybody. Um, my name's Gavin. Uh, I'm a member of the church here with my wife, Lucinda, and our children, Samuel, who's 12, Hope, who's 10, Wilbur, the dog, the Welsh Springer. Sadly, no longer since I last preached here, Nora the hamster is no longer with us. She was one of the great hamsters, I've got to tell you, uh, but she's no longer with us. I'm sorry about that. Um, we are in Genesis chapter 3. Some Bibles might be coming around. Thank you, Katie. Um, I'm not sure what page it's on, but it's probably very early in the, in the Bible. Uh, the reading is going to appear on the screen, and hopefully my translation will match. I think it does. Okay. So, Genesis chapter 3. We're dealing with the fall today. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you'll die. You'll certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realised that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then we're skipping slightly to verse 21. I hope. Yes. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from, what, from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Now, I didn't know she wasn't going to be here this morning. I'd have said this in front of her, but I love having Anne as our church leader. She's a woman of great authority and she knows how to lead. She has led us through a major building project and she has instilled in us a new style of missional church. Not only that, but you know that you're being led by her. She is not afraid of taking you to one side and challenging you about things from time to time. But here, surely she's made a mistake. She's gone far too far. She's asked me to tackle some huge questions here. Questions that many of the great minds in history have tried to answer. What does the fall tell us about God? What does it tell us about us and our identity? What does it say about the world around us and everyone in it? How therefore shall we live? Goodness. Right, here we go. That's quite daunting. But I hope to bring you a few kernels of truth and honesty this morning, while at the same time looking at the big picture. This series is called God's Big Picture. And we need to be able to see the view from 20,000 feet, as well as being able to zero in on ourselves and what the story of Genesis 3 says about our lives and our relationship to God. For something so crucial in the story of people on earth, it's a very ordinary interaction. This story tells us, as if we need telling, of the reality of evil in the world, how it wormed its way into our existence, and the unfolding of the Bible tells us how ultimately this has been dealt with. The serpent is in the habit of bargaining with Eve in order to win her over. Apart from the fact that it's a talking snake, it's a pretty ordinary negotiation. The demonic is not only to be found in the weird and the occult, but in the ordinary interactions between individuals, corporations and governments. Prior to our refurbishment of these buildings, we factored in the need for a kitchen, an office space and meeting rooms but I doubt that we thought of designating a room just for exorcism, as many African churches do. Where physical and spiritual needs are far more raw, the devil's work is more obvious. In the West, this only bubbles clearly to the surface from time to time. However, in parts of Africa, it is clear what struggles are taking place. Sin and the devil work through lies, doing the other down, blame shifting, aggression, relationship breakdown and revenge seeking. He works through individuals, organisations, companies and governments to control and coerce people. Now thanks to my wife's MA course I've been reading a bit of Walter Wink. Now he perhaps isn't on the bookshelves of Christians in this generation but he was widely read 30 years ago. He would argue that every entity in our world has both an inner and an outer spirituality. Your local plumbing firm or city council has outer physical manifestation, its buildings, its personnel, its vehicles, its fax machines. He was talking in the 80s. 
And it has an inner spirituality, corporate culture or collective personality. This inner life of any organisation can be orientated one way or another. And in fact, it's a pretty black and white choice between choosing to do good in order to enhance the human position or to build up power at the expense of others. In the internet age, I'd be interested in what he would have made of Facebook and Amazon and their casual disdain for the best interests of those they apparently serve. These modern powers and dominions are holding sway over governments, treating them with contempt, and all of humanity suffers as a result. Looking at it from the bird's eye view, there are huge conflicts in this world. But the basis for any of these conflicts is only people, of course. Yes, there is objective evil in the world, but that doesn't mean we can shift the blame from ourselves. It starts and finishes in our heart. We can freely choose to go our own way or follow what has been set out for us. God gives us all things to enjoy, but he asks us to trust him. It's in this gap that the devil does his easiest work. The serpent sees Eve's faith over and against her common sense. Sorry, the serpent sets Eve's faith over and against her common sense, forcing a gap between them through which he can drive a coach and horses. We know that creator God loves us and he wants to be in relationship with us. When we seek instant gratification, immediate pleasure at the, cost, at the cost of possible consequences, then the gap between us and him grows a little bit more each time. Sin, of course, is the name given to that which separates us from God, which begins with the abandonment of trust in God's goodness and God's love. One of the results of this division is shame as seen in Adam and Eve's reaction to events. We know we have done something wrong, and we are divided from each other and at odds with ourselves. When we strike out for ourselves and seek to go our own way, we are seeking to make ourselves bigger and more important. But at the same time, we manage to make the gap between us and God wider, which rather than increasing our impact on the world, our effectiveness just gets smaller. Often feelings of hopelessness and worthlessness appear and self-esteem issues result. I had a mixed approach to God throughout my teens and early 20s and prior to completely throwing my lot in with God on my 27th birthday, those dark thoughts and feelings of desperation were the norm for me. But we believe in a big picture God who, when we trust him, we can lift our eyes up to the heavens. How wonderful to see changed lives when people get told and start to understand that they are made in the image of God. God loves them and cares for them. And a church community can surround them with this love. I was at a lunch some time ago. and ended up talking to a senior Cambridgeshire policeman who's a Christian. He told me that he was talking 
to a very senior colleague of his who wasn't a Christian. They were talking about the most hardened, persistent offenders on their patch. And his, his non-Christian colleague said, you know, we should just get him into the churches. Once they're in there, we never hear about them again. Yes, it's true. When broken people find a loving home in the church, their lives are changed. But that's not the end of the process, of course. Once the people the senior policeman was talking about get in church, they get the whole story. God's big picture of a creator God who loves his creation, who ardently desires to be in communion with us, yet the relationship is broken. However, the seeds of reconciliation were there at the very beginning through the word of God as spoken about in John chapter 1. The big plan, the big rescue through Jesus' death and resurrection. No one needs to be lost anymore. All can turn to him and be reconciled to him and each other. We believe in a God of truth and grace. We know that we are dreadful, selfish sinners who constantly allow a gap to open up between our will and the will of God. We know that God loves us and wants to be reconciled to us. And from the very beginning, he knew he would have to do that through the death and resurrection of his son. We know that we are not all right on our own. We know that we need to lean on, in on him at all times. That's why Bishop Curry's sermon last weekend was remarkable. As an initial message to attract people to the gospel, it could not be faulted. But it had a mixed reaction in evangelical circles. What a good way to attract people to the gospel, while at the same time not quite giving people the whole picture. Jesus, of course, showed great love to all he came across, while also laying it on the line, telling people off and setting them straight. Grace and truth. Once the criminal, the drug addict, the vulnerable, the pleasant man next door, the lovely colleague at work, get through the door of this place and any like it, they will continually hear of a God who loves them but also about a God who wants the best for them. A God who doesn't want continued separation. He's dealt with that, but God's mercy asks us to continue to be refined. Not for nothing did Jesus talk about the narrow path. And I remember an old print on the wall of the school in which I taught, which depicted the narrow path with all the staging posts of a considered righteous Christian life, while it had on either side the dangers and pitfalls that the Christian man or woman needs to avoid. In our postmodern age, how dare anyone try to set a moral standard of behaviour? It's my right to be free to do what I want, my right to express myself in any way I see fit, my right to be upset and offended by anything. My right to be a deity of my own making. Our culture has a new moral code, which would say, amongst other things, 
that the best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. And that the highest goal in life is to enjoy it as much as possible. Our faith has been so pushed to the margins that the act of loving those who don't love you back is deemed radical. Indeed, the business that I'm partly involved with is run with faith at its heart. And my brother-in-law tried to explain the idea of self-sacrifice to the marketing company we hired, but he was only met with blank looks of non-comprehension. How far from what C.S. Lewis calls the cardinal virtues of prudence, temperance, justice and fortitude? They're the cardinal virtues. Nothing to do with Roman Catholic cardinals, but cardinal is from the Latin for the hinge of a door. These things are pivotal. I won't describe them all in detail. Some are easier to work out than others. Justice is broader than the legal term. It refers to fairness, honesty, keeping promises. Fortitude is not just bravery in the face of danger, but also the ability to stick it out when times are tough. Guts, in other words. Temperance is just referring to not drinking, not, is, is not just referring to drinking too much alcohol. It's also allowing not any one single thing to have a hold over your life ranging from the seemingly harmless things like sport and shopping to drugs and pornography. But it's prudence I'd like to focus on this morning in the light of Genesis 3. Prudence is practical common sense. Being able to think through what you're doing and what is likely to come of it. But this is hardly thought of as a virtue nowadays. I was quite moved reading this because I think this is where I come unstuck. Lewis says that because Christ said we could only get into his world by being like children, some Christians have the idea that provided you are good, being a bit foolish doesn't matter. For a start, most children actually think quite carefully about doing the things that interest them and they think through actions quite carefully too, more than we give them credit for. But we were never meant to remain children in intelligence. And this is where the link to Genesis 3 comes in. Jesus wants us to be as harmless as doves and as cunning as serpents. As it says in Matthew chapter 10. He wants us to have a child's heart and an adult's head. We should be single-minded and teachable as the best pupil is. Because Lewis maintains that Christianity is an education in itself. That's a warning to us all, I think. If our hearts have become hardened and we've stopped listening to the voice of God, we no longer think of ourselves as needing to learn. It's entirely appropriate that right in the middle of we're right in the middle of exam time now in our schools and colleges. And I can remind us that following the Christian faith means that we must always be students, being educated by God. We might not be faced with the endless rows of desks and the big clock, but we're being examined every day. But nowadays, no one wants to be told what to do, what choices to make, and therefore will go nowhere near a church for fear of hearing some truth about their lives. 
but they might only go near a church because of the love shown them by a Christian friend or the one who gave them a sandwich on, a, on the street. That's why Bishop Curry's sermon was such a beautiful thing. And it's message we need to live out every day. But, and this is a huge but, we are such broken vessels. And if every day I intend to set out on this narrow path, then by lunchtime I'm over here somewhere in a pit of my own making. Here's a helpful thing I found. It's like a daily devotional for resetting us at regular intervals. And I'd be happy to send it to you if you speak to me after the service, or it's easily Googleable, I'm sure. My apologies if you are not a morning person. If you do a daily reading towards the end of the day, please imagine this in your context. This is from a book by Max Lucado. It's called When God Whispers Your Name is the name of the book. But this section is called The Choice. It's been condensed a bit here, but he wrote this. And I'd just like to go through this slowly and prayerfully so we can perhaps, if you want to shut your eyes, please do. But if you want to just be able to try and listen to this and help, see if it's helpful. It's quiet. It's early. My coffee is hot. The sky is still black. The world is still asleep. In a few moments, the day will arrive. The stillness of the dawn will be exchanged for the noise of the day. The refuge of the early morning will be invaded by decisions to be made and deadlines to be met. For the next 12 hours, I will be exposed to the day's demands. It is now that I must make a choice. Because of Calvary, I'm free to choose. And so I choose. I choose love. No occasion justifies hatred. No injustice warrants bitterness. I choose love. Today I will love God and what God loves. I choose joy. I will refuse the temptation to be cynical. I will refuse to see people as anything less than human beings created by God. I will refuse to see any problem as anything less than an opportunity to see God. I choose peace. I will forgive so that I may live. I choose patience. I will overlook the inconveniences of the world. Rather than complain that the wait is too long, I will thank God for a moment to pray. Instead of clenching my fist at new assignments, I will face them with joy and courage. I choose kindness. I will be kind to the poor, for they are alone. Kind to the rich, for they are afraid. And kind to the unkind, for that is how God has treated me. I choose goodness. I'll go without a dollar before I take a dishonest one. I'll be overlooked before I will boast. I will confess before I will accuse. I choose goodness. I choose faithfulness. Today I will keep my promises. My debtors will not regret my, their trust. My associates will not question my word. My wife will not question my love. And my children will never fear that I will not come home.
I choose gentleness. If I raise my voice, may it only be in praise. If I clench my fist, may it only be in prayer. If I make a demand, may it be only of myself. I choose self-control. I will be drunk only by joy. I will be impassioned only by my faith. I will be influenced only by God. I will be taught only by Christ. I choose self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. To these I commit my day. If I succeed, I will give thanks. If I fail, I will seek his grace. And then when the day is done, I will place my head on my pillow and rest. So I pray, I pray prudence for us today. May we have a child's heart and an adult's head. May we, may we be as innocent as doves and as cunning as serpents. May we understand that while we live in a broken world full of injustice, the healing of that broken world starts in my own heart. We're going to go into communion in a minute, um, but I'd just like a moment of prayer. I'm just going to say the opening words from the serenity prayer, which is a prayer that many of us might know. And then I'm going to hand over to James. Let's pray. May God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Amen.